Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stuck on Arrakis. I am your benevolent host, Leslie, and today I'm going to be talking about Sorcery by Terry Pratchett, which is book five in the Discworld series. I can't believe we're already five books into Discworld. It feels like I just started, but it also feels like I've been doing this for a really long time. <laughs> so I'm really excited uh, to talk about sorcery today because I really liked it. I will hint that there is going to be a special guest for the next Discworld book. Um, so I'm really trying to get this up so I can have my special guest for the next book, which is going to be Weird Sisters. I'm really excited about that one too. Um, so let's get into it. Sorcery by Terry Pratchett. Like I said, it's a book five in the Discworld series. Remember, I'm going in chronological order here. So this is their next Rincewind novel. And I will say that Rincewind's novels so far have not been my favorites. I think that that's just because they are the earliest in the series and Terry Pratchett hasn't really found or tapped into what will eventually make Discworld so endearing for me. I, there's all, still a lot of great stuff about the Rincewind novels. I love all of them. Um, they're just not as interesting as some of the other characters. As you guys might remember, Equal Rights has been my favorite book of the series so far. Of course, I love Mort for Death, but I think Equal Rights and The Witches are going to be one of my favorite storylines. And I'm going to have a special guest for, for Weird Sisters, so I'm so excited about that. But Sorcery, um, we're following Rincewind, and before we get started, as you guys know, I have already read a couple of Discworld books before. I started in chronological order, and then I kind of stopped going in chronological order because I decided um, at some point that I really liked Rincewind, and I wanted to just follow his storyline, and then I stopped. Um, so I couldn't remember if I read this book or not, and usually I go by what it says on my Goodreads account. For whatever reason, it didn't say that I'd read this book on my book re- or <laughs> on my Goodreads account. However, the book I have was obviously read already, and it has a sticker from the Borders store that I used to work at when I was in college. So I was pretty sure that I had read it before, um, and I didn't remember that I'd read it until we got to one specific part, and I will talk about that later. Um, so as you guys know, if you're listening to my Wheel of Time episodes, I almost said World of Warcraft episodes. Mm -mm, not correct. <laughs> um, for my Wheel of Time episodes is I'm starting to try to kind of move away from extensive note taking and a lot of prep work before I record. Um, mainly because it takes me way too much time and that creates a bottleneck in getting content out for you guys. But also because I feel like a lot of the reasons why I take so many notes and really script out my episodes is because for some reason I'm not very confident about just sitting down and talking about a book. Um, I'm always afraid that I'm going to leave something out or forget something, but let's be honest, even when I have notes, I'm always high when I record, so I forget shit anyway. <laughs> so I want to really try to practice just sitting down and talking about a book without having so many notes. I do have notes for this one, but they are... Um, bare bones as all fuck. <laughs> it's basically just like page numbers and concepts that I want to talk about. So we're going to try doing this for uh, Discworld as well. Obviously, the structure of my Discworld episodes is completely different than the structure of my Wheel of Time episodes because I'm reading Wheel of Time and discussing it chapter by chapter, 
whereas Discworld books are always um, discussed holistically. So anyway, all of that to say, <laughs> we're going to try this out today, and for better or worse, it's going to happen. Before we actually get into just a general discussion of the book, I do want to say that one of the things that I noticed about this book is that Rinswin's new favorite word is gosh all of a sudden, and a lot of the other characters, or a couple of the other characters in the book also say gosh. I highlighted every gosh, and I swear it's like dozens of goshes. <laughs> And, and Terry Pratchett, I don't remember ever using the word gosh before, so I don't really know what's going on with that. <laughs> I don't know if it's like, because I think one of the other characters that says gosh a lot is Nigel, who is a young, inexperienced um, barbarian in trading, I guess. And um, he says gosh a lot too, and he's kind of also sort of a young, inexperienced, virginal type of character. So maybe gosh is just something that, that those types of characters say. But man, every time something happened, there was a gosh in this book. <laughs> Not that, that it, there's anything wrong with that or anything like that. It just, it, ca it was repeated often enough to really pull me out of the story quite a few times, especially since I was highlighting all of them. It just stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, so I'm hoping that in the next book, or the next Rinswin novel, or going on through the series, maybe we cut down on the number of goshes. <laughs> so let's talk about the book. So the book is called Sorcery. Um, we've read four Discworld books now, and we haven't gotten any descriptions of sorcery until this book, at least that I can remember. So we're being introduced to a new concept. So what exactly is sorcery on the desk, and what is a sorcerer? Well, if an eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son of a wizard is born, they are sorcerers. So if a wizard has eight sons, that eighth son has eight sons, and that eighth son has an eighth son, then that will be a wizard. And sorcery is kind of a problem in the disc. It's not as accepted. It's extremely powerful. Uh, it's completely different than wizardry in that wizardry requires wizards to read books and learn spells and memorize them and do a lot of training, but sorcerers can just use their magic. Um, and I think that if I was going to be a magic user, I would probably want to be a sorcerer or something like that because really wizardry in on the disc just feels like a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> you have to do tons of reading and memorizing and learning and shit like that. And um, as soon as you use the spell, it just disappears from your mind or something like that. Um, so I think sorcery is obviously more powerful. It's less reliant on external factors. And um, because these sorcerers have just unlimited power to do whatever they want to, they are kind of a problem when they show up, um, especially the sorcerer that we get introduced to in this book. Couple more things about sorcerers. Um, Death says that sorcerers make their own destiny and they touch the earth lightly and they seem to be kind of separate from the rest of life on the disc. And the reason that the university doesn't allow wizards to procreate is in order to avoid this exact thing from happening. Obviously, it is kind of difficult to create a sorcerer. You know, you have to have sex at least eight times. <laughs> um, and you have to 
your kids have to have sex at least eight times and have eight babies and stuff like that. So it's actually a pretty rare occurrence because uh, wizards aren't allowed to procreate. Um, it might be more common if they were allowed to procreate, but I feel like having eight kids and one of them has eight kids and then one of them has eight kids. Having eight grandkids or great-grandkids that are all um, magic users, there's probably a pretty low chance of that. But as we see in this book... If a sorcerer does show up, a lot of shit happens. <laughs> so I don't blame them for trying to avoid this from happening. Also, we know um, that wizards aren't allowed to have sex because when you get emotions and hormones involved, um, it gets really hard to control your magic. And um, we kind of see Rincewind start to fall for somebody in this book and feel those types of feelings. So we kind of see why um, procreation for wizards is so dangerous on the disc. So the basic summary of this book is whenever it starts, we're with death and he is going to reap a wizard. And this wizard is the son, oh, I'm sorry, this wizard is the father of the sorcerer. Ipslor, who is the wizard in question that death goes to reap him at the time of his death, um, Ipslor has his son there, and he um, realizes that he has created a sorcerer. And Ipslor wants to be a part of his child's life, even though it's obviously time for him to die. <laughs> so, um, in during this reaping, Ipslor turns himself into his staff, or like goes to live inside of his staff, or becomes a staff, or something. And then he says. I'm going to teach my kid how to be all-powerful. He's going to make magic users the ruler of this world. Um, I don't want to die yet because I want to console him through his life. Um, Ipslor says that his son's destiny is going to be to, to grow to take over the world with his sorcery. And that's like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if we can make that a thing. Like, you have to give fate a way to get out of this. So um, Ipslor leaves a loophole open. If his son throws the staff away, then the prophecy won't come true and he won't rule the world. Um, as we know, wizards don't typically like to throw their staffs away, even though we did see Esk do it in um, Equal Rights. But unless, unless the son, unless the sorcerer ends up throwing his staff away, um, then the prophecy is that he's going to take over the world. I'm sure you can already guess, or, you know, you've already read this, so you know that he does eventually throw his staff away, um, and that the relationship between Ipslor, the staff, and his son isn't all that great. But let's, let's talk about that in just a second. So, I keep calling this kid the son. <laughs> he does have a name. His name is Coin, and he is our main antagonist in the book. And I say that kind of loosely because... Um, obviously, his dad, Ipslor the wizard, is um, living in his staff and, and coaching his son on how to be evil and take over the world, basically. So that's what he does. That's his storyline in this book is he goes to the university when he's younger. He's young for the entire book. He goes to the university. He takes over for the wizards and then he decides that he is not going to stop with the wizards. He wants to rule more pork, and then he wants to rule the disc, and his power just grows from there. And that's our internal conflict, or I'm sorry, that's our conflict of the story. We have this sorcerer who's trying to take over the world, and we have 
um, Rincewind and his pals who are trying to stop that from happening. Coin goes on to um, not only take over wizardry and um, tries to take over several contents on the disc, he takes over Ankh-Morpork, um, he captures the gods and shrinks them into a little bubble so that he can be god in the world. Um, and he just really wreaks a lot of havoc during the book. Eventually, at the end, um, Death is able to finally reap Ipslor. Um, Coin does throw his staff away because uh, his he is obviously he obviously objects very strongly to killing people and what his dad is trying to make him do. Um, but he also, I don't think, feels like he can say no to his dad. Like, I feel like he feels like he has to do what his dad says until the end of the book where he finally has this change of conscience and uh, throws away his staff and then Death is able to reap Ipslor and then the conflict is over. I really like Coin. He's not like the most complex character, but, um, you know, obviously he's working or his dad is working through him. So the coin that we know most of the time is really just like an extension of Ipslor the wizard. Um, coin can do a lot of really amazing things with his sorcery, which I want to talk about a little bit later. But other than that, I feel like he really doesn't have his own thing going on. Um, obviously because he's just listening to his dad and fulfilling his dad's wishes and, um, his plots and his schemes and, and in order to take over the disc. Um, I don't think at any point Coin actually wants to rule the disc. I don't think he wants to kill people. Um, there is a particular scene where another wizard, I don't know, uh, like peeks into his room at night and Coin is crying and he's very upset and Ipslor the staff is yelling at him and telling him that he has to do all of these things. So we get a glimpse, um, kind of towards the middle or end of the book, I think, into the relationship between Ipslor and his son, Coin, and it's obviously very manipulative. So you can kind of tell going into it that eventually Coin's going to be over his dad's shit and he's going to do something else, do something about it. I'm not really sure if Coin realizes the entire time how uh, problematic his behavior is, even if it's not his idea. Like, I think it takes him a while to realize that his dad is evil and that he doesn't have to listen to him and that he doesn't want to. Okay, I'm back. I took a little break to eat lunch and smoke some weed, so I'm now 100% higher than I was when you heard my voice last, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> uh, now I want to talk about the characters in the book. So, obviously this is a Rincewind story. Rincewind is Rincewind. <laughs> he hasn't really changed much. He is still working in the library with the librarian, um, and we get a couple scenes with them in this book, which I absolutely loved. I love the librarian and Rincewind together. They're my favorite. But other than that, Rincewind is, you know, he's Rincewind. He doesn't want to be involved with anything adventurous. He um, doesn't want to be involved with saving any sort of day or any maidens or anything like that. Um, but of course, he always ends up in a situation where that is exactly what he does. <laughs> we also have Konina, who is Rincewind's love interest in the book. And 
she is Cohen the Barbarian's daughter, which is really cool, and I love her a lot. She is a hairdresser, or thinks she's a hairdresser, or tries to be a hairdresser. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that her quote-unquote normal profession still has um, something to do with sharp objects. <laughs> and cutting, and I don't know, snipping, and removing parts of people's body. <laughs> So when Rincewind finds out that uh, Conina is Cohen's daughter, um, she basically tells him, like, being a barbarian is hereditary, so I have these urges to do barbarian things. So she says, yes, well, but from him, her dad, I got sinews you could more about with, reflexes like a snake on hot on a hot tin. <laughs> A terrible urge to steal things, and this dreadful sensation every time I meet someone that I should be throwing a knife through his eye at 90 feet. I can, too. <laughs> she added with a trace of pride. And Rincewind's response is, gosh. <laughs> One of the dozens of goshes in the book. So, I, I don't know, I just think it's funny that, uh, I don't know, professions can be hereditary on the disc, um, and that that Conina has these barbarian urges just because her dad was a barbarian. So that's funny. Um, I also really love Conina a lot. She is probably my favorite character in this particular book. Um, she's a total badass. I love that she's a hairdresser, but like obviously wants to be a barbarian as well. <laughs> and more importantly to this particular book, um, she represents a very attractive female that Rincewind is spending a lot of time with. And as we know, um, wizards aren't allowed to have sex. They're celibate. So at the same time, we have the consequences of a wizard having sex wreaking havoc on the disc. We also have Rincewind really trying to manage these urges that he's starting to have, these feelings, these romantic feelings that he's never had before. And I'm guessing that he just needed to find the right girl, right? I mean, he doesn't really hang out with girls because there's not any in the university, even though I feel like Esk should be there, right? I don't know, like, what, I, I don't know what the timeline looks like with this book. Um, I don't know if it happens concurrently. Is this before-esque? Is it after? Who fucking knows? I mean, I'm sure you guys know, but I definitely don't. <laughs> so, anyway, my point is, Rincewind doesn't hang out with a lot of the ladies. Um, Rincewind is obviously attracted to ladies, and now that he's spending a lot of time with one, he feels these, this sort of fire awakening within him. <laughs> and he doesn't have... Um, I He is kind of resistant to it. I mean, obviously, he is seeing what could happen. So anyway, <laughs> Rincewind is falling in love with Kanina during the whole book. Um, they spend lots of time together. It's very precious. I love it a lot. But Rincewind's not the only one falling in love with Kanina. Um, the luggage also develops a crush on her. And at some point, she tells it to just fuck off. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember what exactly she said. So after it is rejected, the luggage becomes incredibly sad and very upset and it leaves and it has this whole moment where it's very moody and depressed and 
can't believe that it was rejected. It's never felt like this before. Um, so it just pisses off. And a, a bunch of stuff happens to it after it leaves Rincewind and Konina. Um, it gets attacked. It gets us like swallowed up by a river. Um, alligators try to attack it. And all kinds of shit happens. And it eventually comes back to Rincewind and rejoins him. But it had to have, like, this long, dark night of the soul first <laughs> before it came back to save the day, which I absolutely loved. We also have Creosote, who is the leader of Al Alkali. Uh, that's how I'm going to pronounce that word. I don't actually know how to say it. Um, but he is the leader of Alkali, and he <laughs> he is a real character because... I mean, he basically just sits around being perfumed and, you know, rich and writing poetry. And he likes to write poetry for Konina that is really gross and weird and hilarious. Um, so, for example, uh, at one point he compares Konina's boobs. He calls them the jeweled melons in the fabled gardens of dawn. <laughs> So it's just the kind of poetry that's not going to get anybody anywhere, but it's just so hilarious to read it. Um, I think he also calls her her ass the pe uh, peach-cheeked buttocks of the fabled gardens of dawn or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> then we also have Nigel, and I mentioned Nigel um, a little bit, but... Nigel is an aspiring hero. He is um, a barbarian in training, I guess. And the way that he's learning the tricks of the trade is he has a book written by Cohen the Barbarian about how to teach you how to be a hero in seven days or something like that. And he's using this book as a guide to become a barbarian, which is hilarious uh, because obviously Cohen is Konina's dad. And Nigel is hanging out with Konina. I don't think he knows until... I don't think he ever finds out, actually. So, um, the way that we meet Nigel is that Nigel has been a barbarian or a hero in training for exactly three days. <laughs> I keep calling him a barbarian, but I don't think that's what I mean. I think I mean hero. <laughs> the way that we meet Nigel is Rincewind gets thrown in the cellars of uh, Creosote's palace or whatever. And Nigel is also in the the cells or the dungeon or what the fuck ever because he had an asthma attack while he was trying to steal money out of the treasury. <laughs> so he got in there, immediately had an asthma attack and was caught. His very first mission after being a hero for a grand total of three days, which I think is precious and I absolutely love it. <laughs> We have a couple of really interesting villains in this book, and I'm not talking about coin. I'm talking about just your standard run-of-the-mill type of villains. Um, but obviously, this is a Terry Pratchett book. This is a Discworld novel. So um, these villains don't get a chance to do any sort of villainry <laughs> because um, they're taken out of the story almost immediately after we meet them. So... First, there's the patrician of Ankh Morpork, and he is a very typical mustache twirling villain. Let me read a little bit for you guys. The current patrician, head of the extremely rich and powerful Vetinari family, Vetinari family, 
was thin, tall, and apparently as cold-blooded as a dead penguin. Just by looking at him, you could tell he was the sort of man you'd expect to keep a white cat and caress it idly while sentencing people to death in a piranha tank. <laughs> and you'd hazard for good measure that he probably collected rare, thin porcelain, turning it over and over in its blue-white fingers while distant screams echoed from the depths of the dungeons. You wouldn't put it past him to use the word exquisite and have thin lips. <laughs> he looked the kind of person who, when they blink, you mark it off on the calendar. However, it also says, practically none of this was in fact the case, although he did have a small and exceedingly elderly wired-haired terrier called Waffles that smelled badly and wheezed at people. <laughs> it was said to be the only thing in the entire world he truly cared about, he did, of course, sometimes have people horribly tortured to death, but this was considered to be perfectly acceptable behavior for a civic ruler and generally approved of by the overwhelming majority of citizens. The overwhelming majority of citizens being defined in this case as everyone not currently hanging upside down over a scorpion pen. <laughs> um, okay, so maybe he's not really a mustache-twirling villain, but he looks like one, and yeah, he does kind of suck, but he doesn't get a chance to suck because as soon as we meet him, Coin turns him into a lizard and he remains a lizard for the rest of the book, I think. <laughs> I don't remember him ever returning to being a, a person again. Um, so that's hilarious. We also have a Bream, which I, again, don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, I probably will mispronounce it several more times in different ways. <laughs> but... Abrim is the Grand Vizier of Alkali. So he is uh, Creosote's right-hand man. And I, there are a couple more passages that I want to read you guys about Abrim. So he comes in and the narration says, The man, you would have said, has got Grand Vizier written all over him. <laughs> no one can tell him anything about defrauding widows and imprisoning impressionable young men in alleged jewel caves. When it comes to dirty work, he probably wrote the book, or, more probably, stole it from someone else. He wore a turban with a pointy hat sticking out of it. He had a long, thin mustache, of course. And then at some point, he twirls his mustache, probably foreclosing another dozen mortgages, which is hilarious. And then, I swear to God, on the next fucking page, there's a gosh. <laughs> Oh, it followed me around through the whole story. <laughs> we also have another very special character in this book, and I want to talk about him now after introducing Abreem because um, the character in question is actually a hat. It's the Archchancellor's hat from the university. Uh, so inside of the hat lives like the souls or the memories or something like that of um, all of the past arch-chancellors of the university. Once it figures out that there's a sorcerer um, coming for the university or that there's a sorcerer there, it takes matters into its own hands and escapes. Um, it does so by getting people to help it for the most part, and it eventually finds its way to Alkali, where it is uh, put on by... Abrim, the Grand Vizier, and the hat takes him over. So again, Abrim, very, um, very villainous, very shady, snaky guy, 
but he has no opportunities to do anything villainous in this book because he's immediately taken over by the Arch-Chancellor's hat. And the Arch-Chancellor's hat throws the fuck down whenever it has a, bo- a powerful body to command. But we'll get to that in, two, in a second. But of course, it's not some normal plain Jane hat because these are wizards we're talking about. So this is what it looks like. It was pointy, of course, with a wide floppy brim, But after disposing of these basic details, the designer had really got down to business. (laughs) There was gold lace on there and pearls and bands of the purest vermin and sparkling onk stones and some incredibly tasteless sequins and a dead giveaway, of course, a circle of octorines. And apparently onk stones are like rhinestones, but from a different river. When it comes to glittering objects, wizards have all the taste and self-control of a deranged magpie, which is absolutely fucking true. (laughs) The hat itself is obviously extremely opposed to sorcery. It represents wizardry. It represents all of the wizards and all of their power. And it doesn't want sorcery to take over the world. um, And it definitely didn't want sorcery a sorcerer to put it on, which is why it escaped. So um, as the second it gets a body, it just wages all-out war against sorcery. And in in this process, we get to see some really cool wizardry and sorcery in the book because the wizards are finally... I mean, we've seen wizardry in the last four books, but I feel like the wizards are finally like, oh, we should actually, like, do something. <laughs> We should actually be a part of saving the world this time instead of just waiting for Rincewind to do everything. So the hat, um, its one goal is to get a body that it can fight back with. And once it does, um, a war breaks out, basically. Um, but before that, whenever Quine uh, first takes over Ankh-Morpork, he uh, completely changes it to be totally spotlessly clean. Um, so it's like white marble and there's no bums and the river is, is clear and shit like that. And uh, that's how Rincewind knows something is very up when he co- goes back home to Ankh-Morpork because it doesn't stink. It doesn't look like it used to. But as I mentioned just a second ago, um, this book is basically all out magical war for a little bit whenever the Archchancellor's hat is um, waging war against sorcery and the wizards who have aligned themselves with coin instead of you know trying to save wizardry which can you really blame them because like with sorcery all you have to do is be like boom i want this and it happens but with wizardry you have to study and memorize and then as soon as you use it you gotta fucking do it all over again So this becomes an all-out magical war. Yeah, one of the important things to know about wizards is that when they're fighting, they um, build themselves a tower and they align with nobody. So whenever a magic war happens, the wizards will keep fighting until only one of them is left. So, you know, they have this very tenuous peace normally where they kind of agree to work together and um, have this home at the university. But as soon as the university is no more and Coin builds them a new tower to rule as sorcerers, um, which is actually like its own pocket dimension or something like that. Um, but once once that's broken, once the university is broken and no more, the semblance that they had of peace 
also dissolves. And now everybody is fighting everybody, or everyone will fight everyone else um, after sorcery is destroyed. So it's not looking so hot for the disc at this point. But let me just read to you what what is going to happen. So this is actually a description of um, the last magical wars, the last mage wars. And there were, of course, no alliances, no sides, no deals, no mercy, no seas. The skies twisted, the seas boiled, the scream and whiz of fireballs turned night into day. But that was all right because the ensuing clouds of black smoke turned day into night. The landscape rose and fell like a honeymoon duvet. Ooh. <laughs> and the very fabric of space itself was tied in multidimensional knots and bashed on a flat stone down by the river of time. All the wizards were pretty evenly matched and, in any case, lived in high towers, well protected with spells, which meant that most magical weapons rebounded and landed on the common people who were trying to scratch an honest living from what was temporarily the soil and led ordinary, decent, but rather short lives. But still the fighting raged, battering the very structure of the universe of order weakening the walls of reality and threatening to topple the whole rickety edifice of time and space into the darkness of the dungeon dimensions. One story said that the gods stepped in, but the gods don't usually take a hand in human affairs unless it amuses them. So that was the last mage wars, or the first ones, I don't know, the, the, the ones that left um, huge pools of magic all over the disc where nothing can grow now. Um, and Rincewin is thinking, like, this is where we're headed. We're headed towards another one of those wars. And we see it as the book, um, you know, comes to a conclusion before they, they're able to stop coin is, um, exactly that the wizards start building towers. Rincewin himself builds a little tower and, um, they start attacking each other. Uh, most of the conflict is between the wizards and uh, coin and the wizards who have aligned themselves with sorcery and they do quite a bit of damage before they stop but I don't think um, it's nothing like the first mage wars. Another hilarious thing about, about sorcery is um, there are quite a few wizards that go over to coin side because they realize how fucking awesome sorcery is compared to wizardry and um, they use their sorcery for exactly what you probably think they would use it for. <laughs> so Abreem as the hat, the hat slash Abreem, Arch-Chancellor Abreem, <laughs> goes to attack the sorcery tower that they built in Alkali. And when he goes to do that, Rincewind goes to, and the wizards that have aligned themselves with sorcery come out, and uh, this is what it says. This is so funny. <laughs> Rincewin was used to the dressy ways of wizards, but this one was really impressive. His robe was so padded and crenellated and buttressed in fantastic folds and creases that it had probably been designed by an architect. The matching hat looked like a wedding cake that had collided intimately with a Christmas tree. <laughs> so, of course, they used their newfound sorcery to... Um, make the gaudiest possible outfits for themselves to wear. Now to the best part of the episode, things that made me laugh. Hope you guys are ready to laugh too. Oh, so I read the dedication of this book and I fucking love it, so I'm gonna read it again. Many years ago, I saw in Bath a very large American lady towing a huge tartan suitcase very fast on little rattly wheels 
which caught in the pavement cracks and generally gave it a life of its own. At that moment, the luggage was aboard. Many thanks to that lady and everyone else in places like Power Cable, Nebraska, who don't get nearly enough encouragement. <laughs> ah, I love that. At the very beginning of the book, when uh, Death comes to reap Ipslor and we meet him for the first time, Ipslor asks Death what makes living worthwhile, and Death says cats. Cats are nice. Hard agree. <laughs> uh, oh my god. Here's another gosh. Okay, so, um, so Spelter, who is a wizard, is thinking about the sorcerer and how sorcerers come to be, and he's, he was thinking... Eight sons. That means he did it eight times, at least. Gosh. <laughs> oh, God, that's so funny. <laughs> Apparently, the wizards on the disc have tried to experiment with genetics, um, but the study of genetics on the disc had failed at an early age when wizards tried the experimental crossing of such well-known subjects as fruit flies and sweet peas. Unfortunately, they didn't quite grasp the fundamentals, and the resultant offspring, a sort of green bean thing that buzzed, led a short, sad life before being eaten by a passing spider. <laughs> oh, I think that's hilarious. Coin and his sorcery-aligned wizards, which I guess is the name that I'm using for them because I've used it several times now. <laughs> um, they're talking about whether or not the rulers on the disc are smart or not. And Carding says, We rule the city, but who rules the world? There must be a thousand petty kings and emperors and chieftains down there, not one of whom can read without moving his lips, said a wizard. <laughs> the patrician can read, said Spelter, not if you cut off his index finger. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I love this passage. Uh, Rinswind and Conina... Rinswind and Conina... Who, who, by the way, stole the hat. Um, I forgot. I totally forgot to mention that. The hat tells her to steal him. Or it. And she does. And that's how um, Rincewind meets her. But anyway, um, they go to Alcali. Rincewind stood and gazed upward. The crowds of Alcali bouncing off and around him in a kind of human, brownian motion. A temple, he thought. Well, it was big and it was impressive. And the architect had used every trick in the book to make it look bigger, even bigger, and even more impressive than it was. And to impress upon everyone looking at it, they, on the other hand, were very small and ordinary and didn't have as many domes. And as a domed woman, I disagree. <laughs> I beg to differ. Show me all of these domes. I bet I have more. <laughs> The narration goes on to describe the many smells of Alcali, and the passage says, Rincewind, of course, couldn't smell any of this. Adaptation is a wonderful thing, and most more Porkians would be hard put to smell a burning feather mattress at five feet. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Whenever Rincewind, Kanina, and Abreem, the Grand Vizier, first meet, um, Abreem tries to have Rincewind thrown into the dungeons and tortured, um, after taking Konina to a harem. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, Abreem says, Hold on. Take him away and throw him in the spider tank, he said. No, not spiders on top of everything else, moaned Rincewind. 
The captain of the guard stepped forward and knuckled his forehead respectfully. Run out of spiders, master, he said. Oh, the vizier looked momentarily blank. In that case, lock him in the tiger cage. The guard hesitated, trying to ignore the sudden outburst of whimpering beside him. The tiger's been ill, master, backward and forward all night. <laughs> then throw the sniveling coward down the shaft of eternal fire. A couple of guards exchanged glances over the head of Rincewind, who had sunk to his knees. Ah, we'll need a bit of notice of that, master, to get it going again, like. <laughs> the vizier's fist came down hard on the table. The captain of the guard brightened up horribly. There's the snake pit, master, said he said. The other guards nodded. There was always the snake pit. Four heads turned toward Rincewind, who stood up and brushed the sands off his knees. How do you feel about snakes, said one of the guards. <laughs> ah, can any of their torture just work? Like, who is running this shit? <laughs> if you run out of spiders to torture people with, order some more fucking spiders. Earlier, we talked a little bit about the luggage's heartbreak. And as one does, when one is brokenhearted, he goes to get drunk. The luggage was feeling crossed in love and was doing what any sensible person would do in these circumstances, which was to get drunk. <laughs> and he drinks a lot. Like, more... I mean, obviously, it's the luggage, right? So it probably just goes into whatever dimension his stomach is. <laughs> this book also has one of the funniest footnotes that I've ever read. Um, Terry Pratch is trying to make the point that uh, Rincewind is such a coward that if there's anything wrong, everyone around him will notice because he'll be running away. So if he's calm, everything's probably cool. But if he's running, everybody else should run too. And it says, many people who had gotten to know Rincewind had come to treat him as a sort of two-legged miner's canary. And the footnote says, all right, but you get the general idea. <laughs> oh God, that's hilarious. Creosote, who is, I, I mean... With the way that Alkali is described, even the name Alkali, um, the s different smells and um, things like that, I think that it's very obviously inspired by uh, Arabic culture. And um, there's even a mention of um, Arabian Nights with the jeweled caves, and uh, alleged jewel caves. I can't remember what the passage was, but I just read it. <laughs> uh, trapping trapping adolescents in alleged jewel caves. Um, so, of course, Creosote, being the Arabic-inspired leader that he is, has a genie lamp and a magic carpet, <laughs> which is what they use to get out of the city that's being destroyed by magic. Uh, but I, I just love this. And because this is a Discworld novel, we don't get a normal genie. <laughs> we don't get a typical genie. We get a genie that completely ignores uh, Rincewind and Conina, regardless of how many times they rub the lamp, which is fucking hilarious. Uh, Rincewind rubs the lamp and... Oh, I'm sorry. Nigel rubs the lamp. <laughs> and the narration says, The effects were curiously unimpressive. There was a half-hearted pop and a puff of wispy smoke near Nigel's feet. A line appeared in the beach several feet away from the smoke. It spread quickly to outline a square of sand which vanished. A figure barreled out of the beach, jerked to a stop, and groaned. <laughs> it was wearing a turban, an expensive tan, a small gold medallion, shiny shorts, and advanced running shoes with curly toes. 
like I mentioned earlier, the genie is constantly blowing them off because he obviously doesn't want to do any work for them. <laughs> so Kanina asks him to do something and the narration says, he was now holding something curved and shiny to his ear <laughs> and listening intently. He looked hurriedly at Konina's angry face and contrived and contrived to suggest by waggling his eyebrows and waving his free hand urgently that he was currently and inconveniently tied up by some irksome matters which, regretfully, prevented him giving her his full attention as of now. And he does that a couple more times where he acts like he's too busy or he just doesn't come out, um, which is fucking hilarious. Eventually, they convince him to listen to them, and he takes them to, or he helps them travel to Warpork inside of the lamp that one of them is holding. I'm getting confused. <laughs> Rincewind isn't with them. He travels a different way to get, well, he travels, I think, on the magic carpet to get to Warpork. Nigel and Konina um, travel together with, uh, I think, Kreeze. So, so Rincewind's not a part of their group as of now. Just a correction. But anyway, Rincewind goes back to Ogmoreport to confront Coin and in the sorcery business. And the first thing he sees is that the library is destroyed. And next to the library is the Tower of Art, which is where the librarian and the books have fleed the destruction. But I think the Tower of Art is really interesting. So I wanted to read the description. He wondered how old the tower really was. Older than the university, certainly older than the city which had formed about it, like screen around a mountain, maybe older than geography. <laughs> so, interesting, older than geography. Okay, I don't know what that means, but whatever it means, um, it was a good place for the books and the librarian to hide, and that's all I care about. Um, I am wondering, though, why they didn't just, like, escape into L space. Isn't that, I mean, that's where you can, like, lend books and shit, right? L space? Um... I'm sure somebody who has read the entire series will um, explain to me why they couldn't use L-Space, but I feel like the books could have just hid there for a while and uh, the librarian could have, I don't know, hid in the tower. Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> they get out. Um, Rincewind discovers that the books are safe. Once he walks into the tower, the librarian falls on him like the descent of man, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> and the librarian is like, performing surgery on one of the books uh, when Rincewind gets there because it's injured. Um, and not every book makes it out alive. Most of the important grimmeries <laughs> deal with it. That's how I pronounce the word. Uh, most of the important grimmeries had got out, but a seven-volume herbal had lost its index to the flames, and many a trilogy was mourning for its lost volume. Quite a few books had scorch marks on their bindings. Some had lost their covers and trailed their stitching unpleasantly on the floor. But they're okay, which is all we can really ask for, right? <laughs> oh, now we can talk about the part of this book that I remembered, and when I got to it, I was like, oh yeah, I did read this book. So this magical war has started between sorcery and wizardry. And, I mean, magic is just flying everywhere. Buildings are being destroyed, um... The wizards and the sorcerers are not considering what they're hitting. They're just launching fireballs, right? So they're pretty much just fucking up everything. So, of course, this was going to herald the end of the world. Um, eventually, 
they would just continue to kill each other like we read in the book. Um, so the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the apocalypse, like, uh, like it's called in this book, um, I guess they stop at a bar to get a drink or some lunch or something before they come, like, herald the apocalypse. <laughs> but instead of doing so, they get really drunk. And I mean, like, really, really, really drunk. And uh, Nigel and Konina, and I think Rincewind was there too. Now I'm getting really confused about where Rincewind is. No, I think it was Creso. They steal three horses. Um, they steal three of the horses. I think they leave Death's horse, which... It's described as, like, white, and I don't remember Binky being white or being described like that, so I don't know if this is just, like, Death's special end-of-the-world horse or what. <laughs> but um, three of their horses are stolen, so they become the one horseman and three pedestrians of the apocalypse. Never make it to actually end the world because they got too drunk, which is just absolutely fucking hysterical. <laughs> Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, and yeah, those are the things that I thought were funny. Um, I Overall, I really liked this book. I loved this epic magic battle um, and all of the fun shit that we saw happen with magic in this book. Um, I loved the characters. I loved the plot. Um, there was Rincewind and the librarian action together in this book, which always makes me happy. And um, a lot of, I don't know, a lot of really cool things happen. Like the fact that the only thing I remember of this book is the one horseman and three drunken pedestrians of the apocalypse. That's good shit. <laughs> uh, there are also tons and tons and tons of great references in this book to other really great works and obviously cultural uh, references and things like that. Especially there, I saw a lot of Kubla Khan references in this particular book. Um, I don't really want to talk about all of those because I'm sure everybody else has talked about it before. I'm literally going to put a link to where you can find more information about that. If you love Discworld, you probably already know about the L-Space website and that you can look at um, kind of the annotations for the books and the cultural references on the website. But if you don't know that, um, the link for a sorcery's uh, page of cultural references is in the description of this episode, and you can go through and look at those. Um, and yeah, that's it. That's Sorcery. I loved it. I thought it was a great time. I'm very excited to uh, get started with Weird Sisters so I can have my special guest on. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you in the next one. Definitely don't miss it. Pick up Weird Sisters now and start reading it so that you can listen to my next episode. Okay, bye! Bye!